Welcome to Medicare for All Explained. This podcast will enlighten our listeners and dispel the distortions that surround Medicare for All. Medicare for All Explained is produced in collaboration with Physicians for a National Health Program and is hosted and produced by Joe Sparks. I'm your host, Joe Sparks. This is episode 41, Racism, Healthcare, and Medicare for All. My guest, Sanjeet Sriram, MD, MPH, is a pediatrician in Southeast Washington, D.C., and is an assistant professor of pediatrics at the George Washington University School of Medicine. Dr. Sriram is the senior advisor on Medicaid for Social Security Works, a grassroots advocacy organization dedicated to protecting and expanding Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid. At Social Security Works, he leads a campaign called All Means All, dedicated to making racial equity a cornerstone of Medicare for All. And Dr. Sriram is also Dr. America, a health justice correspondent for We Act Radio, where he writes op-eds and creates innovative media to draw connections between health policy, inequity, and social determinants of health. Dr. Sanji Sriram, welcome to Medicare for All Explained. Thank you for having me, Joe. Before we get started on our topic, racism in healthcare, I'd like you to tell people about your work and about Mass for America, because that's a great program. Oh, thank you. Yes. Back at the end of March, I was approached by a couple of activist friends, Kristen Mink, who um, was a teacher, and Bob Bland, who is the co-founder of Women's March. Um, and they were asking me if I would be interested in joining them on a fundraising project uh, to raise money for uh, KN95 masks to be delivered to every health worker who needed them. And uh, and they introduced me to Edgardo Miranda Rodriguez, who's a, a Puerto Rican comic book artist and was willing to let us use um, his uh, creation, La Borinquena, as the face of our endeavor called Mass for America. And so we got started at the end of March, and we had an FDA-certified uh, KN95 mask um, producer who was willing to, um, you know, pretty much put all of our um, effort into the manufacturing and distribution of masks such that for $2, we were going to make it possible to get uh, a good, uh, you know, COVID-19-free protecting mask to a healthcare worker who needed it. And so we got started and, um, you know, it just uh, really grew and grew. And now we're working with a whole lot of different partners um, in getting uh, personal protective equipment, PPE, to not just health workers, but to any and every kind of uh, frontline worker and including to our brethren in the Black Lives Matter movement. We've donated masks to a ton of organizations that are on the ground doing grassroots racial justice work. And um, today we are, uh, we are at half a million pieces of PPE delivered to, uh, play, uh, to clinics and hospitals and community organizations across the country and in Puerto Rico. And, um, and uh, most recently we were uh, donating tens of thousands of masks to 
uh, tribal clinics in Wisconsin, and the work goes on. And so, you know, we are asking people to donate to MASP, the number four, america.org. Again, the website is MASP, the number four, america.org. And to just donate what you can, because every single penny of every single donation goes to making sure PPE gets into the hands of um, our uh, frontline health workers and all kinds of workers and community organizers who need them the most. So it's it's been a really uh, it's been a, a very heartwarming and inspiring cause to be a part of, and I appreciate getting a chance to plug it. Thanks, Joe. Well, thank you for that work. When I post this episode, I will put a link to Mass for America in the description. Oh, terrific. Thank you. Thank you. So now we're going to get started on our topic, racism in our healthcare system. I'd like to start by asking, I know you've done substantial research on racism in our healthcare system, and I'd like to know, what do you consider to be the most concerning or striking differences related to racism in our healthcare system? So, um, I, you know, I think that it's uh, everybody has um, different vantage points of how they approach, um, you know, this large and complex issue of racism in healthcare. Um, I came at it from the vantage point of when I looked at um, who the uninsured are and why they are uninsured, um, racism really uh, was just glaring to me because uh, the demographics show that 59% of America's uninsured are people of color, and that's across the entire country. And then what I found uh, even more alarming is how when you move from state to state, the disparities become even more drastic. Uh, you know, a lot of eyes have been on Minnesota uh, this summer. Um, and, you know, Minnesota, just as an example, people of color make up 21% of the population, but they make up 44% of the uninsured. And that narrative is very common across the Midwest, which we don't really think of as being particularly diverse, but it is uh, very telling that there is not a single part of the country where, uh, where being uninsured is not a racial injustice. And could you cite some statistics? Like, I know there's a difference in you know, black infant mortality compared to white are the maternal death rate. Could you cite a couple of quick statistics to illustrate the problem? Yeah, sure. So um, uh, Latinx children are twice as likely as white children to be uninsured. Black babies are twice as likely to die uh, as, uh, as white babies. Uh, and, and black women are three times as likely to die um, as white women when giving birth. And so those are just some examples of some statistics that I think are the tips of a very large and complex iceberg. And um, it really does point to the fact that we, we have such unequal care in this country, largely because we don't have healthcare as a basic human right. And has the pandemic made these differences more apparent in your opinion? You know, I think it depends on who's looking, right? Because I feel like for people like me, when I hear that the city of Chicago, that I think has 
as of mid-April, uh, 70% of the deaths um, from coronavirus were from uh, people of color, and I think black people specifically. Um, and that's in a city where you know um, African Americans make up 30 percent of the of you know of the of the population. Um, and you know, for someone like me, I was very disappointed, and you know, it, um, it, it it's heartbreaking to you know hear these kinds of numbers and see these kinds of statistics. But I wasn't shocked, and I wasn't surprised. And the reason why is because for um, for a long time I've been familiar with how unequal our entire economic system is. Um, right now, only um, one in five African Americans and only one in six Latinx uh, people in the U.S. can work from home. Everyone else has to uh, do work outside of the home, and a lot of that work is considered essential, but for decades now, not just during the pandemic, but for decades, it's been treated as expendable. Um, a lot of the people who stock our grocery stores and our pharmacies, a lot of the people who, you know, drive delivery trucks and work in transportation, they often do it with uh, with not very good benefits from their job, and they are more often than not, they don't have the kind of access to healthcare that respects their hours or that really delivers meaningful care to them. And so a lot of chronic health issues are, um, are left to linger on and, uh, and worsen. And along comes coronavirus, and it's devastating. And so for me, I felt that you know, we have had a longstanding system of injustice that the coronavirus has taken advantage of. In ways that are very disturbing and um, and deeply unjust, but are not surprising. How did you first become aware of the problems of racism in healthcare? It almost sounds like that it was something to do with your work that led you to it. Well, you know, I'm a pediatrician in Southeast Washington D.C., and before that, I did my training at UCLA, and I have, and so I've spent the bulk of my career um, working in uh, minority communities, um, you know, ever since I was in medical school. And so for me, the, you know, the gaps of, of race when it comes and the disparities of, of healthcare for minority communities has always been front and center. It's never been a side project or a vanity issue. This is, uh, this is the, my day-to-day grind and work. And so at every corner, I'm always trying to figure out, like, what does XYZ policy do for the people that I take care of? What does the system change mean for the parents and grandparents that are caring for the kids that I see? And so I have a very sensitive radar for uh, for racial injustice, simply because um, I it is impossible to ignore in the work that I do. This year, 2020, is a landmark year for America's children because uh, the majority of America's children are people of color starting now. And that population will continue to grow and grow for uh, the rest of uh, our foreseeable future. And we have to, you know, really ask ourselves, are we building a healthcare system or an economic system that is worthy of them. Is this the kind of system that we should be passing on to these kids? 
And so, that brings up another point. Often people will talk about the social determinants of healthcare. And, as a brief aside, in my podcast interview with Dr. Barbara Burney, somebody said to Dr. Burney, oh, this should not be called social determinants, it should be called political determinants, because we can change them if we want to. So how much do you think the political determinants of healthcare have an effect? So, you know, I'm glad that you bring up this distinction. I kind of blend the two together and call them socio-political determinants of health. And what we find is that the, the work that any clinician does is only, a, is only impacting about 20% at best of a person's health. Um, you know, and that's like best case scenario that you're able to impact about 20% of a person's health. The remaining 80% is impacted by a range of issues, housing, nutrition, transportation, employment, quality of pay, uh, violence, um, and immigration. A whole range of issues come together and uh, their collective impact is going to determine a lot of health outcomes, 80%. And, um, and that's not a best case, worst case scenario. That's just is. So that is what I think clinicians have to understand the context of clinical work is that we have to recognize that, you know, all of these forces can either undermine or support our work in the right kind of sociopolitical environment. And when I look at policies like Medicare for All, and when I talk about them in communities of color, I'm quick to point out that Medicare for All will not be enough if we are talking about it in the midst of a food desert. Uh, Medicare for All will not be enough if there is massive amounts of homelessness. Medicare for All is not going to be enough if there are unequal uh, job opportunities in a community. And so to me, Medicare for All must be part of a larger network of policies that are all committed to racial equity um, in, uh, in ways that I don't know if even the progressive movement has gotten there yet. Well, I interviewed Dr. Susan Rogers, who's the president-elect of Physicians for a National Health Program. Uh-huh. And what she said as it relates to healthcare, she mentioned these other issues, but as it relates to healthcare, she considers Medicare for All a necessary first step to address the healthcare disparities in this country, but that in and of, in and of itself won't solve the problem. So I'll put that to you. Do you think that Medicare for All is a necessary step or a necessary first step? And obviously, based on what you said, there are other things that need to be addressed. But let's just start with Medicare for All. I absolutely agree with Dr. Rogers that this is a critical step in the right direction. And for me, I look at Medicare for All as critical racial justice policy for three things. And there's, I mean, there's plenty more reasons why, but these three kind of come first to my mind. One is, is that you know, when we talk about universality, right, I think that this is where a lot of people who are for Medicare for All might run into uh, friends and family who are questioning them, saying that, look, I'm for universal health care. Why do you have to be such a stickler for Medicare for All? 
And what I point out is that are we talking about the same thing when we talk about universality? Because the Medicare for All that I'm talking about includes undocumented people. It includes LGBTQ people. It treats reproductive health care as simply health care and, and doesn't section it off as um, a separate entity that has uh, um, additional hurdles uh, before a person can access it. And the reason why these elements of universality matter is because they are all very tied to race. Um, you know, I think with undocumented immigrants not being excluded from, you know, healthcare, it's obvious how that hurts, uh, racial justice. But with, um, you know, when we exclude or create barriers for our LGBTQ brethren, uh, that hurts, um, minority LGBTQ people more so than almost anyone else because they are facing so many socio-political hurdles as it is, and then healthcare should not be exacerbating those hurdles. Um, reproductive healthcare, um, real, you know, if we're going to talk about wanting to eliminate the disparity between uh, black moms and uh, white moms when it comes to maternal mortality, we need to talk about the entire range of reproductive health, not just postpartum uh, management of care. And so to me, like universality has to be very uh, clear and specific about what it actually means. It can't just be universality in rhetoric, but not in reality. Um, you know, a second element for why I believe Medicare for All is crucial racial justice policy is because it recognizes the economic realities of how people of color live their life. And that is to say that, you know, um, the patients that I take care of, they change jobs as, um, as they need to in order to make ends meet. They will, you know, do some schooling on the side. They will, you know, um, add hours to their shift, all in the name of just trying to get by. But all of these financial decisions should not change their eligibility for care. And with our current system, we have so much fragmentation that a person deciding that they are going to, you know, find time in their life to get a certification or a license can often mean that they are no longer eligible for certain kinds of coverage and must wait before they can qualify for a program like Medicaid. And instead, what Medicare for All does is that it just makes care continuous, that all of these financial decisions are done independently of your eligibility for health care because your humanity was the only eligibility that you ever needed for healthcare under Medicare for All. And this is crucial to how families of color make it through uh, situations like the pandemic and all of its economic devastation, is that healthcare becomes a source of peace of mind because it's continuous. Lastly, and, and I think this is huge, is that Medicare for All is about reinvesting in communities the way that our status quo simply does not. A global budget for hospitals means that a hospital in a poor community, a hospital in a predominantly Black or Latinx community, or a rural hospital does not struggle to stay open simply because the people that it serves are low income or are on Medicaid. That hospital has... Um, just as much ability to stay open and meet its mission of public health compared to uh, hospitals and clinics in wider, wealthier parts of the country. And 
that to me represents a huge investment in those communities and makes a budget statement that we believe in in your health, we believe in your well-being, and we want you to do more than survive. We want you to thrive. And this hospital is going to not only stay open, but it's going to expand upon its mission of public health in ways that the status quo simply does not because it's a multi-payer complex system that drains hospital resources in ways that don't benefit health. So for all of these reasons, I look at Medicare for All and I see a racial justice policy, which is critical to our to our future. I wonder if you're overlooking one point that I think is worth mentioning, especially if people are struggling to get by. The fact that Medicare for All eliminates out-of-pocket expenses. Oh, most definitely. Um, you know, I, I, I didn't mean to overlook that at all. I mean, I, I agree that, you know, to me, the peace of mind that comes with knowing that your health care is not going to be another challenge to your limited budget, right? That, you know, you're not going to go to the pharmacy and try to, and I've, and I've seen, you know, uh, families struggle with this, where how are they going to knock out all the co-pays for everybody's medication? while also taking care of groceries, while also taking care of school supplies, that false choice is gone because healthcare is going to be taken care of. And the family now has whatever money that they were going to spend on and waste on co-pays and deductibles, that's going to go back into the family. And you're right, that is absolutely huge for, um, for communities of color. One of the things I'd also like to talk about is your All Means All campaign, because in doing that, you've collected a lot of data and have some great data. So could you please talk about that? Oh, sure. Absolutely. And thank you for bringing that up. So the All Means All campaign, the the mission is to make racial equity a cornerstone of Medicare for All, as opposed to a side project or um, an, a vanity or uh, issue or an issue of pity. We really want the conversation about Medicare for All to pivot on racial equity. And so to, um, to, to reframe uh, Medicare for All, we've created fact sheets for every single congressional district, which outline the number of people who are uninsured and juxtapose that against the state's uh, racial disparities. And so these fact sheets are available to everyone and anyone and everyone at socialsecurityworks.org slash all means all. And um, they are available for download. Um, and we have fact sheets for every congressional district. We have fact sheets for every state. And the information also includes disparities uh, based on income and education level too. So it's, uh, I'm hoping that these become launch points for um, meaningful conversation and action among community organizers and their coalition. So that's some great work that you've done on that. And I will also post the link to that in my description when I post this episode. Before we end, is there anything else that you would like to mention? Yeah, you know, um, I, I think that the, the other element of racial equity in Medicare for All, um, but in, in many of our policies that cannot be um, overstated enough, is the importance of urgency. 
Um, a big part of why I, I wanted to build this campaign and why I do the work that I do is because a lot of folks assume that the United States will become a majority people of color country in the year 2040. And I prefer that folks think about the demographic change uh, in the present rather than in the distant future. Um, 2020, as I mentioned before, is the year where America's children will be majority people of color. There are about eight states which um, are already majority people of color. So um, when you look at states uh, like California, Hawaii, Nevada, New Mexico, um, and then even on the East Coast, uh, Maryland is the uh, first state on the East Coast to be majority people of color. And, you know, New York and Florida are not far behind at all. Um, these are, you know, demographic changes that are happening now. And if we want racial justice in the here and now, we need policies like Medicare for all urgently. And I am hoping that we can renew our um, our commitment to Medicare for all in a racial justice framework, just because I think that if not now, then when. Sanjeev, I want to thank you so much for your work on the All Means All campaign and for Mass for America. And I want to thank you so much for being on Medicare for All Explained. Oh, thank you, Joe. I'd love to come back anytime. I may take you up on that. <laughs> you have been listening to Medicare for All Explained. Information about this podcast can be found at our website, medicareforallexplained.org. The music for this show is Super Bubbly by Jesse Spillane. The logo was created by Lily Sparks. Thank you for listening. <laughs>